0: pushkin
1: the most innovative companies are going further with t-mobile for business the pga of america is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with ai coaching tools and 5g connected cameras aaa is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics a room upgrade don't wait to make smart financial decisions compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com reminder credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply NerdWallet,
0: finance smarter if your business needs a new
2: application then developers will have to write code a lot of code if an application needs to be modernized then you'll need time
3: There are fundamental beliefs that I hold, values and principles. But in terms of the direction of the world, does the arc of uh, justice ever arrive at its destination? Does the arc of justice even exist? I don't know. I do know that this world ultimately will end. I know that human beings won't be here forever. I know we have a chance in the brief time we're here to become the best expressions of who we are.
0: That was Brooke Gladstone. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. For the last 20 years, journalist Brooke Gladstone has been making sense of the news. Her show, On the Media, says to examine the media narratives that shape our worldview, for better or for worse. And this is undeniably true. The Peabody-winning WNYC program is focused on contextualizing all forms of media. Print, web, TV... But when I describe it now, I can feel, it may sound a little inside baseball, a piece of media about other media, but that's simply the show's hook. The core of On the Media, and really by extension, Brooke's work, is an exploration of people and ideas. Sometimes it's about people in the press, and other times it's about people like you and I, people doing their best, reading and watching trying desperately to keep a pace with the 24-hour news cycle. I don't know about you, but in these last few months, I've found trying to keep up uh, with all of this to be really futile. It's Brooke who makes the futility feel a little less bad each week on her show. Her great gift, and it's something we talk about in this episode, but her great gift is an ability to see and speak clearly about a whole range of subjects prone to obfuscation. From D.C. politics to First Amendment debates, to larger cultural conversations on race and income inequality. She's a level-headed, even-handed journalist, the kind you don't see much of in 2020. And it's for that reason that I sat with Brooke this week, in this moment, as our country slowly reopens. I can't tell whether it's because I'm speaking from inside a closet instead of a studio, but everything feels deeply uncertain right now. I'm sure I have some of the same worries that you do about public health, about this administration's handling or mishandling of the virus, about reopening too soon. All of it feels deeply uncertain, and yet we can take some small solace in knowing that whatever happens... Whatever unfolds, what is certain is that Brooke will be there to help guide us through it, for better or for worse. I'm hoping for the former. Brooke Gladstone, thank you so much for being here. Many have talked about how you are uh, a great source of comfort to them, and your show on the media is a great source of comfort. Um, I have found it less and less comforting these days, but it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's just the uh, the situation does not allow for a lot of comfort.
3: It is a sticky wicket. You know, you want to provide stories, information, context, narratives that uh, give people a way to feel comfortable in the face of what they're confronting. But right now, it's disease and death exclusively, very little opportunity for humor. I have a piece sitting in the can for a month now about Shakespeare and uh, his adoption in America since the founding. He is America's most renowned poet, though of course he isn't. And uh, it just stays on the shelf because each week the staff says, well, you know what, we really need to do the theme on this and, and that's not going to fit in. And what can I say? You know, it's uh, it isn't going to fit in. My idea was to offer a kind of relief from the gloom and doom, but we keep trying to reconfigure our role. You know, what is our role right now? And we think it's to just put things in narrative frames that have history and so you don't feel quite so insane. I guess that's what it's always been in a
0: way. I think that's probably what it's always been, but uh, this is... Something you explore in your book, The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination on Moral Panic. And I want to go to it here. You're laughing. I don't know why. Maybe because...
3: Well, the title is a little bit of a, of a self-important joke. So when people say it, I always think, you know, maybe I shouldn't have assumed that people would find that funny <laughs> I,
0: I didn't I didn't know Brooke I thought maybe you thought well I'm just that important I'm gonna come up with that title
3: yeah no I was I was making fun of myself but you know I think yeah sometimes decontextualized irony can fall flat
0: well I'm glad three years removed we can explain the joke um, on this <laughs> podcast so I want to give you a quote from it you wrote: is reality what a significantly large group of people hold to be true? Certainly no one currently living in America or on Earth could believe that. Now the unknowing or unhinged can coalesce a vast number of like-minded souls into a force so powerful it can shift reality's prism or elect a president. Part of the problem stems from the fact that facts, even a lot of facts, do not constitute reality. Reality is what forms after we filter, arrange, and prioritize those facts. Reality is personal.
3: More and more as I studied the media, I realized that we all create our own worlds and we are living in blinkered worlds. Long ago, someone said that reality is far too complicated for any of us to understand. We have to simplify it. And that simplification makes our existence possible. Our immediate emotional reactions guide most of our activities during the day. It couldn't be otherwise. There was once someone whose whose brain was damaged in a railroad building accident. And his emotional center was completely destroyed. So you'd think he'd be like a Mr. Spock, that he would be so above us in his clarity and in his logic, but he was incapable of making a decision. You know, the blue pen or the black pen. How do you decide? That you decide emotionally. The blue pen might be good for this, the black might be better for that, or maybe it has to do with the uh, reproduction in the Xerox machine. Who knows? You go down this rabbit hole and you never emerge, whether it's a pen or a breakfast cereal or a mate, and that is precisely what happened to that guy. So if we don't understand that we are guided so much more by instinct than we are by uh, reason, then we can't possibly understand the situation that we're in and that we've always been in, but that we're so much more obviously in right now.
0: When I try to survey what's happening in this country, the idea of reason feels really far away. And you have a lot of people, including people in the White House, um acting on instincts like you're saying but whose instincts are maybe not so good
3: you have to adhere to the rules of uh false balance on this program Sam? No. <laughs> <laughs> well this is this um, this is
0: not on the media.
3: <laughs> well we don't either that's why we get criticized a lot. I mean if you look through history there was a time when slavery was debatable. And to be objective, you had to give the pros and cons. You know, society moves on. And then you have to figure out, well, what is your role at a particular moment in history? And it's slippery and it's changed. So when I heard that formulation, it made me smile because I think a lot of my colleagues are always wrestling with it. You know, that may not be perfect in the White House. We can all see what's going on in the White House, right? A lot of law breaking and in the the Oval Office, a lot of just tantrums. I mean, we have a direct line through Twitter to the president's id. I mean, it couldn't be more obvious.
0: How are you personally reconciling right now, both on the show and off the show?
3: You know, it's interesting, but I think that uh, I have this mental trick of looking from 10,000 feet. What I was going to do before the last election was to leave the show mm-hmm. and write a book about Neanderthals. I love Neanderthals. You know, all girls do. But the fact is is that I've been so fascinated by the fact that our view of Neanderthals has changed for as long as I've been aware of them, which is uh, uh, far shorter than... The world has been aware of them. And I just think about what's happened to humanity in that time, how it's become so different. In some ways, it's so much the same. And I think I'm sort of used to the idea that uh, we won't be here forever. And then time gets really narrow and you think you just have to do your best to be the kindest person you can be the most useful person you can be uh the most appreciative and grateful person you can be just in the moment it's that in itself is an impossible task but i think that uh that enables me to deal with this moment it's all temporary nothing lasts but you've
0: always felt like that right i mean i have a quote here you said time is limited mortality is always on my mind. It always has been. I started wearing black when I was 13 (laughs) to commemorate the passing of my childhood.
3: That sounds exactly like me. I have no idea when I said that. (laughs) You said it
0: in February of 2017.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it has been always like that for me. I mean, I think it is for more people than who actually admit it. I used to talk to my past self and my future self in the corner of a, of a house that we had.
0: Just one corner?
3: Yeah, just one particular corner. That was my sort of time machine. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I never got messages from the past or from the future. So I gave it up after a while. But it has always been uh, tricky for me, time. I'm in... In some ways, I think I experience it like most people do, just day to day. And where did that year go? And where did that decade go? And how did my kids get all grown up? And where was I? And did I take advantage of the time I had? And am I still squandering the time? And then part of me says that, you know, maybe it's too much to ask for. You just decide things as you go. I mean, it's very vague. I sound very zen, and I'm not actually zen at all. I'm a I'm a pretty anxious person, prone to uh, depression and all of that, and maybe I just talk a good game. But I, I understand that none of it is all that important.
0: You describe yourself as an anxious person. Yeah. It doesn't totally come across on the podcast, but I think the intersection of who you are as a journalist and who you are as a person seems to most clearly come into focus when your mother passes away.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I found after a while, after I became a radio reporter, that I couldn't process the news of the day if I wasn't recording it, if I wasn't forced to interpret it for somebody else. And so when my mother said that she was done... And she was living in a country where being done was not legal. That I had to run there and I had to have my tape recorder. I had to tape her. My whole family was there for a large part of that. And then three of the six siblings stayed for the end. And some nieces. And I was recording the whole thing. I had uh, her conversations with us, our conversations as a group. Everything was recorded on cassette tapes at that time through a microphone, a buyer mic that I shoved into a flower pot. And uh, I immediately calmed down. It's a strange thing. The worst part of it is that I've never been able to find the tapes. My sisters really want them, and I've never been able to find them. But I was just so relieved in that moment to be able to record it. And when we got kicked off the air after 9-11 for a few weeks, I, I don't think I ever really processed that. And I was just frankly mad with jealousy of the reporters who did.
0: What do you remember about those conversations between you and your mother? Before she passed,
3: my parents were. Boy, you will edit this, right, Sam? Please. I'm so, such a megalomaniacal editor. It's really hard for me to imagine that my long pauses and retakes are regarded as pregnant when they're really just me trying to formulate something, but but maybe that's the same.
0: Well, I think the pregnant pauses can be interpreted however they're supposed to be interpreted by the person interpreting them. <laughs> <laughs> so that is, a, that is a circuitous way of saying I'm open and happy to hear the pregnant pauses so long as they're in the name of being honest.
3: Of course. And uh, for me, my formulation is I will leave a pause when I think it conveys information. The 50 minutes we have for our show is very dense. I think that's the word that is applied to it most often. And I think that's largely because if it doesn't have information, whether it's a piece of music or a pause, a silence, if it doesn't have those things, if it's just something that happens in the course of doing the business of radio, I... uh, I get rid of it. Mm-hmm. In terms of my parents, it's just such a it's such a big question. My mother was, I think, frustrated a lot in her life. And I think that the six of us were a big pain in the ass for her in some ways. We were whiny, we were needy. Uh, she was creative. She didn't really ever get the chance to explore that creativity except in fits and starts. She took us all aside and then basically told each of us pretty much the same thing. What she loved about us was how different we all were, although I don't think we really were or are all that different. Uh, So we made fun of that. But mostly we talked about music and art, and we asked her about her life growing up in Yonkers in the 30s and the in the early 40s. And we just chatted, and we laughed. There was a lot of uh, off-color humor, and uh, my mother was definitely eating... Uh, enhanced brownies at the time. I don't think there was anything really vitally important in those conversations. I think it was just the fact of them that was important. We were there to to mark something and to be with her.
0: Where do you see her in you and your work now?
3: I have some of my mother's impatient nature. I have some of her intensity. Mm -hmm. I have some of her frustration, but I have a great deal less of it because I have so much more opportunity to express myself. I have an unbelievable opportunity to express myself, which she never did. I know that every time I get in front of a mic, I think to myself, and it's really true, I think, I can't believe they let me do this.
0: (laughs) You know, you've said of the show that we've never edited to win the argument. It's true. And I bring that up because... I wonder if that sense of fairness does come from your mother or your father.
3: That's interesting. They were just regular people. In fact, they always had big schemes and they always went out of business and they had more kids than they could handle. And my mother used to joke that she lost interest in us when we uh, began to talk. (laughs) And (laughs) she, uh, I just, I think they believed in the American dream, I don't believe I do. I think I know a lot more history than they do. I know that the system doesn't allow for equal access to success for everyone. I know this is not a meritocracy. I know that's part of our myth.
0: I don't know. You've been doing this job for, what, 17, 18 years now? 20. Right. And we're in a time which is a way to start a sentence I know you don't like, but we're in a time where media is so fractured and the people watching are so deeply polarized that you offer this venue that does allow for different perspectives where you don't edit to win the argument. And as more time passes, I really believe what you folks offer is an anomaly.
3: I think that the only way out of this is to not pull your punches, not pretend to understand when you don't, but respect people enough to differ with them to their face, not pretend to feel differently than you do, not to pretend to belong to the convocation of passionless priests that uh, mid-century journalism liked to see itself as, but to be one human being dealing with another human being directly and with civility. I just feel that It is the lack of respect that has hardened these tribes more than anything else. Just the dismissive contempt that uh, the cohort that I see myself as part of will heap on uh, those with whom we differ so profoundly creates so much more division to the point where distress on either side becomes some sort of victory. At one point, the president said, I think we should have those rallies again. And uh, someone I know tweeted back, go for it. And, you know, I knew precisely what that meant. Spread the virus around your group of MAGA hat wearing loons and extremists and conspiracy theorists and racists and so on, it doesn't help. I don't believe people see themselves that way and they don't want to be regarded that way. And so I just think that in the end, if we can't treat people with dignity, we will never, ever uh, be able to cross this profound divide or it won't happen until we do. Ultimately, we will. And it will happen later rather than sooner, though, if we don't start treating people like they're human beings. On the one hand, it seems so obvious to say, come on, treat people with respect. But when the beliefs are so different, And we can't even conceive of a world in which someone might actually believe what they believe. We have a microphone. It's not a big one. It's not particularly powerful. But it's ours. I think that fundamentally is the choice we made. It doesn't mean that the show lacks passion or the show lacks anger or humor or irony or rage, it just means that it's it's real. And uh, we always felt back when the show began 20 years ago, it was very uh, unusual to express your opinion the way that we have. We always thought that transparency is the objectivity in the digital age. You can find out who we are. All you have to do is look us up. Uh, it's all there. There's no point in pretending to be who you aren't just after you find out who we are then you have to determine whether or not we're still going to tell you the truth and whether we are in fact fair even while holding very strong opinions that we will argue uh so that's what the show is the idea of
0: transparency feels antithetical to most contemporary journalism that i read and watch on the television and The second idea that you brought up about dignity, compassion, respect. Do you see those ideas practiced by modern journalism?
3: I think generally they're not priorities. Reporting has never been about that. Reporting has always happened in accordance with the reality of the reporters and the publishers. And things changed a lot when everyone was able to become their own publishers. And not as much as we thought and not in the way that we thought, but marginalized ideas, good or bad, were just dispensed with. They weren't discussed in mid-century journalism which is the period everyone likes to remember as the Golden Age. Most of the universe was not in that discussion, and their concerns were not reflected by it. Now we have a cacophony of voices, and all of those concerns are somewhere there in the ether, but you can barely make it out because of all the noise.
0: On March 25th, the New York Times reported that Mr. Trump and his coronavirus updates have attracted an average audience of 8.5 million on cable news, roughly the viewership of the season finale of The Bachelor. They also (laughs) uh, recalled Monday night football numbers. Um... I'm reminded of Ace in the Hole.
3: Oh, yeah. Great Kirk Douglas film.
0: Yeah. yeah, I, I rewatched it last night in, in preparation to speak with you. Not that I think you're like Kirk Douglas. <laughs> for people who have not seen the film, the premise is very, very simple. A wayward, drunken journalist finds a job at a newspaper in New Mexico. He works the beat for a year. He wants to go back to Chicago and New York and write for big papers. He finds a man stuck in a hole many miles away from his office. The situation worsens because Kirk Douglas, as this flailing journalist, decides to worsen it. He, he keeps the man stuck in this hole and builds a whole kind of circus ring uh, for him to make money. He decides to do so for personal profit, career success, exploitation be damned, the ethics of journalism completely discarded, The more I watched Ace in the Hole last night, the more uh, I was unable to shake the modern networks covering this virus and covering Mr. Trump over the last four years. Is that fair?
3: I don't think so. I think that if you want to make a comparison to the Kirk Douglas character, it would probably be Wiz the occupant in the White House, he inverted what journalism was supposed to be, Kirk Douglas. He started out as an intrepid investigative reporter, lost his job, found an opportunity to get back to where he was. He was doing it all for purely personal reasons. Uh, Now, the networks, obviously, they're commercial. American media is not a state-run media, not even public radio. (laughs) is state-run, and for obvious reasons. But we seem to have two models, a commercial one or state media. And uh, we decided that commercial would provide us the better news. I would say that some of the networks have done a better job than others. I have to say that CNN under Zucker, who uh, left the camera focused on an empty podium waiting for Trump during his campaign, rather than cut to the speech that Hillary Clinton was giving at the very same time. I mean, an empty microphone instead of an actual candidate speaking, seems to me to be a very serious choice. I think that there was some tremendous miscalculation done, and I think it's still happening, for sure. But I think that you can't indict the reporters who are working as reporters because it means something to them. It's meaningful. I think the networks are trying to do what they can in order to make it in a world where the business models are all broken. I do think you can still get the best news in print. I never advise people really to watch cable news, except for breaking stories where you just can't bear to stay away. I don't think it's a great source of information. It brings you information that is unconfirmed and uh, and frequently half-baked and often poorly sourced. But the immorality, the active immorality, the self-congratulatory rapaciousness of the Kirk Douglas character. I've never encountered that in any journalist I've ever met.
0: You said CNN made a grave miscalculation. Was it a moral miscalculation? Because I don't believe it was an economic miscalculation.
3: Yeah, I think it was immoral. I do. I think that to fix a camera on a podium, where no one is speaking, as opposed to giving the other candidate an opportunity to say something, simply because we knew that Trump was an audience magnet, meant that you had chosen unequivocally uh, one goal over another. I feel that that was a betrayal of journalism. And I feel that a lot of times it's the rules of mid-century journalism applied to a person who doesn't follow those rules uh, created a huge problem during the campaign and in the early parts of the Trump presidency. I think that much of the mainstream media have, uh, have finally caught up, but I, it's still a work in progress, And obviously, the media are not uh, speaking as one. They can't speak for the values of the American people. And the people have been uh, profoundly divided long before Trump ever took a political stage.
0: It's hard to imagine that we, on top of the pandemic, have to think about an election coming. (laughs) Yeah. But we do. And... As someone who is rigorously covering this, do you think the media has learned anything about how they covered Trump in 2016 and how they perhaps ought to cover him in 2020?
3: Absolutely. They covered Trump as a joke in 2016, a carnival barker. They saw him as some sort of peculiar anomaly Uh, When he got the nomination, there was a shift, but I think people were still uh, stymied by their own disbelief. I think nobody takes that position now. Everybody understands that a great deal is at stake and that the coverage needs to be complete. That doesn't mean there still won't be cameras fixed on empty podiums or the like. I think that will still happen. We'll still be saddled with narratives about each candidate that serves to oversimplify. There'll still be much more discussion about the horse race and less about the issues there, there will still be ample opportunity for what is known as the low-information voter to go in and just pull the lever for their guy. I think that, however, given the tribal nature of our politics today, there are only a very few people left to persuade Fewer and fewer with each election.
0: Do you think society has learned lessons from the past four years?
3: I think that uh, my social cohort has learned that the system doesn't work. Which system? I mean that American politics, American finance, American capitalism... They're not objective. They're not natural forces. That the decks are stacked and that the great disease of American inequality is going to continue until that changes. I think that Trump revealed the poison that is in the American body politic And I think that it's been revealed even more by our vulnerability to the coronavirus. I think all of this has enabled people to see things in a different way. The rescue packages that we have, as incomplete as they may be, as poorly administered as many say they are, uh, none of that seems to change the fact that we could never have done this before, actually put money in the hands of people who need it, not funneled through states that may sit on it forever, not into organizations that make their own rules about who gets it and who doesn't, but to A greater degree than there has been for decades and decades, for generations, in the hands of people who actually need it. Not enough, not always in the right place, but it's a start. It's a change in perspective, and I think if there is a positive thing to the moment we're living in is that it enables us to see and then have the potential to address long-standing problems that people just could no longer endure.
0: A change in perspective is a phrase I really like, and it reminds me of uh, this experiment that you wrote about in your book. It was conducted by uh, Emory Un- University Professor Drew Weston back in 2006. Mm-hmm. And uh, he used an fMRI brain scan to monitor What happens inside a voter's head when confronted with candidate statements that showed lying or pandering? You wrote, voters in this study reckoned easily with the incriminating statements of the opposing candidate. But when they confronted hypocrisy from their own candidate, well, it was a different story. Could you describe what happened?
3: In the part of the brain. The interiors cingulate. There was a tremendous amount of flashing lights when they had to deal with the fact that their own side was lying. When the other side was lying, the reason part of the brain lit up. But when it was your side, uh, you got all of this hormonal activity in this part of the brain and the light up that was basically like in Lost in Space uh, the robot saying danger Will Robinson, danger Will Robinson and uh, that continued until uh, you found a way to reconcile the fact that your guy had lied and you know they also had a control it was like somebody who's clearly not in your party, someone who clearly was, and then someone who everybody liked, you know, like Tom Hanks or somebody like that. And, uh, and reason prevailed when uh, the Tom Hanks uh, character lied and when the, opposite, the person from the opposite party lied. But when your person lied, the reason areas stayed completely dark. And then finally, once you'd reconciled it, you got a shot of dopamine. It was like a a hit of Coke as a reward once you figured out how to rationalize the lie from your side.
0: Dopamine upon deceit. Yes. (laughs) How can we apply that to this moment? Because it feels deeply embedded in how people talk about the current state of affairs in politics.
3: The only way that we can incorporate that kind of insight into this moment is to understand that what you feel is baked in the bone. And when it is, it is literally nauseating, sickening, it physically hurts to challenge the way that you've created your world, to see it smash apart I think is what caused so much anxiety on the coasts and in the cities when Trump was elected. Because it wasn't just somebody you didn't like getting elected. It was the virtual impossibility of somebody like that getting elected in what you thought was your world. And Everything, the ground moved between your feet and creviced opened up and you fell into them. All I can say is the Weston experiment just reveals how we are wired to lie to ourselves and how if you really want to confront the moment we're in, you need to be aware of that at every moment. And basically subject yourself to the sickening experience of holding yourself completely objective. I mean, it's physically impossible. And yet that is what you do to reduce the tribalism. Other than that. You can go out to those areas that you may never have been in the country or hang out with people that you may have never known and get to know them as complete people rather than caricatures. Fill in the blank spaces in the anime that enables you to project whatever you need onto a character and see them for who they are. But that is time-consuming and expensive. <laughs> you seem to have made a living out of it. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I I am in the uh, bubbliest bubble of all. I live in Brooklyn, and not only do I live in Brooklyn, I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Oh, no. You might as well call it the People's Republic of Brooklyn. It's also a place where it, it, it's not difficult to encounter a great, deal of smug self-satisfaction uh nobody here wants to make themselves sick (laughs) doing what i propose
0: yes i think people have seen the noah Bombach movies (laughs) (laughs) i uh i have this wonderful uh philip k dick quote courtesy of you Mm mm-hmm we live in a society in which spurious realities are manufactured by the media, by governments, by big corporations, by religious groups, political groups, very sophisticated people using very sophisticated electronic mechanisms. I do not distrust their motives, he wrote. I distrust their power. They have a lot of it, and it is an astonishing power, that of creating whole universes, universes of the mind. I ought to know It is my job to create universes, and I have to build them in such a way that they do not fall apart two days later. Do you feel that that is your job on On the Media at this time?
3: Yeah. No, I think it's the job of On the Media at this time, and I think it's the job of journalists at any time, is you have to do your very best to be accurate and fair. And in our case... We have to help people who feel so much stress and we feel it ourselves to find a way to live in the world that we're living, to find a place in it, to find a role in it, and to get a handle on it. Uh, I think that's why we spend so much time on history in our show. Everything has a past. Everything has its roots and if you follow them all the way back, you can follow them almost to the founding of the nation.
0: This is maybe a silly question to ask a journalist, but where are you finding hope
3: these days? Hope. <laughs> um, well, I guess history. And maybe because I do have that cosmic nihilism at the end of it. I mean, I know that uh, everything ends. Nihilism's probably the wrong word there.
0: You have been tap dancing around this philosophy for the last hour.
3: Yeah, I guess I haven't. I try not to plant a stake in the ground because then you spend the rest of the time defending it. I think that's part of the problem that we're in right now. There are fundamental beliefs that I hold, values and principles. But in terms of the direction of the world, does the arc of uh, justice ever arrive at its destination? Does the arc of justice even exist? I don't know. I do know that this world ultimately will end. I know that human beings won't be here forever. I know we have a chance in the brief time we're here to become the best expressions of who we are. I believe we have that potential. I believe we fail continually. I believe we also improve. I think that one reason why things seem so dark is because we are able to see so much more than we ever could before. There are still fewer people starving, fewer people dying per capita, uh, more justice than there's been in the past. This was a brutal world. And it's still brutal, but there are some principles that are still shared now that weren't shared 300, 400 years ago. A sense that it's not okay for a child to starve. The sense that we do have some responsibility to others. We fail, we fail, we fail all the time. And we have limited time in the space of the cosmos to get it right before we go. I guess my, the tap dancing philosophy that I have is to try and live in all of those moments at the same time. The immediate one, the middle distance, the epoch, uh, the cosmic end. And I do think weirdly that I manage it. And I find solace in knowing that what we do to each other matters to each other and to no one and nothing else. I was speaking to Margaret Atwood, and I said... You've spent your whole life writing about the environment. Oryx and Crake is an amazing trilogy I recommend to people. Apocalyptic fiction of all kinds. You've been very tapped into the dangers our world faces. Aren't you worried for the next generation? And she said, you know... People always ask me, aren't you worried? Aren't you worried? And all I can say is, sure, I feel bad for the pain they're going to experience. But as bad as this sounds, it's not my problem anymore. There's nothing else I can do. And aside from the fact that I love that she has no more fucks to give in a lot of ways, I also love that she was accepting her own mortality and everybody's mortality. She knows we're all playing out the string. So all you can do is the best you can do. And my solace is that I'm doing the best that I can do. Is that hope? I guess I don't really believe in hope. Hmm. Does that answer your question? Have I stopped dancing?
0: Yeah, I think the music has stopped a little bit.
3: Well, don't stop the music, Sam. Why do you do this?
0: Why do I do what? Why do you do these interviews? What made you ask that?
3: It's how you spend your time. It's precious time.
0: Well, I certainly hope you don't think we've wasted it.
3: (laughs) There's no judgment there. It's just, you know what you're doing is a luxurious thing, right? Like me, you know, you, you have a platform and I just wondered what encouraged you, what led you to do what you're doing?
0: The abbreviated answer, since we don't need a whole oral history in this moment, uh, I do the show, sorry, I started the show and I continue doing the show because I don't know anything. I know nothing at all. Truly nothing at all.
3: (laughs) You must know a lot. You're a very good listener. I'm trying. (laughs) So what did you learn from the show?
0: Well, you know, (laughs) it's tough when you ask me this because there are two lights going off in my head. The one is talk for the tape, self-edit, Think about the presentation of this episode. The other light is respond to Brooke in a way that I would if we were having a drink together.
3: I think you should. It'll it'll mean more to people who are listening and it'll mean more to me. And why not give it a shot?
0: So what have I learned? Yeah. Well, God, we've done 170. I learned something different from each episode. I, I really believe
3: that. But you pick people for a reason. Yes. So I'm just wondering, you know... They must make you curious in some way. Do you find a common theme? Do you... You've done 170 of them. Mm -hmm. You must have figured out what gets people to open up and what makes some people clam up. (laughs) I mean, it isn't just a reflex. I found you can't interview people reflexively. You really have to be curious. So why do you pick the people you pick? I noticed there are a lot of actors and musicians, a smattering of journalists, critics, some directors... What are you after?
0: You know, I would never allow this, but since I really do believe um, that this show wouldn't be happening without On The Media, I, I'm going to allow it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to allow it and because I love you and your work so much. Well, aside from the fact that, like I said, I really believe I don't know shit, um, if you're asking me about the universal recurring theme is that everyone else doesn't know shit. And honestly, the thing I find really comforting about doing these podcasts, whether it's with you or Gloria Steinem or, or Noam Chomsky or Ted Danson, it doesn't matter who it is, I love hearing people trying to find it. I find that to be um, deeply relatable and comforting. And I, I not only do I find that to be true for myself, but I know from people listening that they find that sort of processing, that searching for how they feel about what they believe in or who they think they are. They find that comforting. And in many ways, it's unifying both for everyone who's come on and myself, but really for everyone listening. So I suppose that's my answer. I, I really think we're all a lot more fucked up than we allow ourselves to be in public. And you've talked a whole bunch on the show and on this show about transparency. That's the only thing I care about every week that we do this. And as Especially right now, when it's really all we have. I mean, we're not around each other. We're by ourselves for the most part. If you're lucky, uh, like I am, you have a partner that you spend time with. Maybe you have some family members that you call, some friends that you try to connect with. But you're mostly on your own, more now than ever. And it's my hope throughout the four years of doing this podcast, but really on the other side of this and there will be an other side of this as much as it doesn't feel like it i really hope we're all just a little more fucking honest with each other publicly and can admit that we don't know anything and that we're trying to find something learn something but we're just doing the best we can and that's why i try to do the show to explore questions that i don't have the answers to to sit with people that i do not know and hopefully create a space that allows for mutual reciprocation not so much in knowledge but in you know the search of questions the search of answers and the messiness of you and i and it's messy holy cow it's messy I know where you come from. You have six siblings. Your parents were intermittently broke. They had a vague anxiety about money that they didn't want to articulate to you. But it did translate. It did become part of you. It's why you waited tables and you got fired from waiting tables. Because when people were rude to you, you couldn't stand how fucking rude they were. You know, we didn't talk about that, but I know that. And it's in your work. I know that because I've been listening for many years. And now having sat with you, I do believe everything is more connected than we make it out to be.
3: Bravo. Bravo, Sam. I have to say that what you do on an individual level with your guests, just enabling your listeners and your guests and you to see over and over again just how fucked up everybody is and how nobody has the answers, except, uh, maybe about their craft. I think that's what's going on now as a nation. We're forced to confront what we thought was a solid edifice that was really just a rickety old engine that if you kicked it, it would just fall apart. Hmm. And it has. And what a marvelous revelation that is. What an opportunity for change. And maybe there's your hope. There's hope. That's the hope that I hold for now.
0: Brooke Gladstone,
3: thank you very much. Sam, thank you.
0: And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Katya Rogers and Brooke Gladstone. You can listen to On The Media wherever you get your podcast. You can also visit their site at www.wnycstudios.org. To learn more about Brooke, you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com. There you'll find some of our recent episodes that I think you may like if you enjoyed today's podcast, including talks with Ted Danson, Roxanne Gay, Elizabeth Gilbert, Noam Chomsky, Juliet Lewis, Naomi Klein, and Beto O'Rourke. You can find and listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast Stitcher wherever you do your listening. You can also find and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasyPod. If you're looking to help us out there are really two ways to do that. The first is by way of donation, You can learn more about that at talkeasypod.com slash donate. On that note, I want to give a special thanks to Cindy McCammon and Heather Green. Cindy, if I mispronounced your last name, I am sorry. You can uh, send me the corrected version at our email address at talkeasypod at gmail.com. And really, any of you that wants to write us, uh, you can do so at that address. We'd love to hear from you. If you can't make a donation, especially in this moment, a great way to help us is just by sharing the show online. On Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, with a friend, with your family. It's really the best way for new listeners to find this podcast. Speaking of, this thing we do would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Associate producer, Nikki Spina. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. Our social media is by Deja Washington. Music by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our editors are Andre Lin and Kat Owen. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be releasing a bonus episode with a couple pals with new projects, Terrence Nance and Malik Fatal. Keep an eye out for that in the middle of the week. On Sunday, we'll be back with the legendary Holland Taylor. Until then, re-enter carefully, wash your hands, wear your masks, listen to the experts, and have a safe week. So long.